another two years now. I don't think so, but we're going to be here for a while. But um, we're in a sub-series or a mini-series in Matthew, and that's how we've broken the book down into different mini-series so we can more accurately cover all the subject matter, and there's so much subject matter in here. Uh, but uh, this series we're in right now is called The Great Betrayal. Now, this is our last service before Christmas, so I, I really wanted to preach a message with more of a Christmas theme. And I didn't want to preach the ones that you're used to hearing, right? You know, the, the deliverer is delivered, and you know, you guys have all heard those things, right? All those different titles. I better shut up, because some of you might have had those titles. But, um, you know, I wanted to have something with a Christmas theme, but ironically, if you look at where we're at in the text, what we're discussing right now in the text, we are actually in an area that does just that. It, it has a Christmas theme because it can be related so easily uh, to the Christmas message. I know, I mean, when you, think of, when you think of Christmas, right, I mean, we think of the bright star, right? We think of the, of the shepherds. We think of the manger. We think of the wise men, right? Which, incidentally, that's why Jesus wasn't born in Washington. They couldn't find three wise men there, but <laughs> in D.C., but... Anyway, uh, but we think of the wise men, and kids think about what? Presents. That's right. Okay, let's be honest. Adults think about what? Presents. Okay, right. And there's nothing wrong with those images of Christmas because those actually, you know, those, those hold true, and they're important to the story, you know, the, the Christ story and, and the, the manger scene. They're really important. But if you think about it, the whole reason that Jesus came to earth is about what we're going to be discussing today. Because when you break it down, Jesus was born to die for our sin and to restore man's relationship with God. But for, in order for that to happen, the veil of the temple had to be torn, had to be removed. And we'll discuss that today. Now, last week we left off where Jesus said, it is finished. And he surrendered his life. He just, he just gave his life. Now, today we're going to look at some of the events that, that transpired right around the death of Christ, and one of those events is the temple veil being torn in two. And so I'm hoping that through today's message we'll see that Christmas is really, uh, more, it's, it's, it's about more than just the manger and, and the wise men. There's, it's about the greatest gift that God ever gave us, and that gift is his presence, the ability to have his presence again. And that's why we entitled the message today, it's all about the presence. Okay, so let's jump back in. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 51a. Whenever you see like a after a, a verse number that just means the first part of the verse so matthew 27 51a it says and behold the veil of the temple was torn into what from top to bottom if you're following along in your bible underscore that that's really really important okay now explaining the veil isn't easy okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna try to make this a little bit easier for you how many people here have ever went to a concert or a sporting event and stayed afterwards to try to get an autograph anybody ever do that <laughs> like, like nobody? Do you guys like go to concerts? I know some of you in the 80s. Don't, don't make me point you out. <laughs> you were at the Poison concerts and stuff. Brian, just sit there quietly, but I know. But anyway, you go to those concerts, and if you stay after to get an autograph, right, and the, there's this huge line of people wanting to get their autograph, right? And at the front of that line, there's usually some kind of barrier, right? It's always going to have security guards, but sometimes it's yellow tape, and sometimes it's one of those thick, you know, corded ropes, uh, just some kind of barrier that keeps you from the artist or keeps you from the athlete, right? And, and that barrier reminds you that you don't have direct access to that person. You, you're not their friend, 
You guys, you know, don't celebrate Christmas together. You guys don't go golfing together. You're a fan. You don't have direct access to that person. Now, they can approach you, but you can't approach them. Okay, that's kind of the closest thing I can think of because that barrier reminds us that we don't have a personal relationship with the athlete. We're a fan, right? And if you try to act like you have a personal relationship with him, it'll turn out bad. If you're one of those crazy people that tries to run through the barrier, right, you'll get tackled, you'll get cuffed, and you'll probably spend the night in jail, right? If you, it just, those barriers remind us that we don't have a personal relationship. That's, there's a separation, a disconnect there, right? And that's kind of what the veil is like. But this veil, this separation between man and God actually began in the garden. Now, I promised I would try to make this a, brief, a more brief message today. I'm going to try to keep my word there. But anyway, we're still going to go back to the beginning. All right, because that veil actually started with Adam and Eve. Now, how many of you knew this? Did you know that Adam and Eve actually, in the beginning, w- had direct access to God? He was actually with them. They were in his presence in the garden. They had perfect I mean, perfect fellowship with him. If you look at this, Genesis 3.8, it says, They, talking about Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So we know that his presence was there. They were among his presence. They heard him. He was walking in the garden, right? But what something happened when, when Adam and Eve sinned, right? When Adam ate of the fruit second after Eve did, not that that means anything, right? But anyway, when Adam was deceived by the woman, no, I'm just kidding. Don't email me. All right? But when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that direct access with God and therefore lost it for all of mankind, right? Because they were the representation of all mankind. Look at Genesis 3.22. It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Okay, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I'm going to. Okay, I can't help it. Anybody ever wonder why he said us? Anybody ever wonder that? It says that, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Okay, we serve a triune God. You've heard of the Trinity. We serve a triune God. That means there is three separate and distinct personalities that make up one Godhead. Okay, that's what that means. And it's very, very important because the us he was talking about here was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right? They were all present at creation. They were all present in the garden. And he's saying, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, that didn't mean, because there are people that actually teach that, that Adam and Eve had superpowers and could fly around. I'm not kidding. They literally preach that, right? Because he says they become like one of us. What that meant was now they knew good and evil. Right? Because we have the mistake of thinking that Adam and Eve were made perfect. They were not. Right? They were innocent. Right? They were just innocent. They were not accountable for their sin until they knew what to do and did the opposite of that. Then they became accountable for their sin. Then they knew the difference between good and evil God knows the difference between good and evil, and when they knew the difference between good and evil and chose to do evil, when he was saying they were becoming like one of us, he was saying now they know the difference between good and evil, and they chose evil, right? The word God uh, used back in Genesis is Elohim. You've got to have that weird accent on it, (laughs) right? Elohim, right? And it's actually a plural. 
It's, it's a word for God, but it's a plural word. And it, it's used to describe God all through the Old Testament, often through the Old Testament. If it were singular, the word in Hebrew would be Eloah, not Elohim. Right? Just like seraphim. Seraphim means plural. Seraphah would be one. Okay, anyway, I promised I wasn't going to go in that, but I lied. Okay, uh, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so because of that sin, because Adam and Eve knew what they were not supposed to do and chose to do it anyway, because they did that, that sin put man on the other side of the barrier, on the other side of the rope, if you will. Right now, there was something separating man and God. No longer was there direct access. Adam and Eve had it, and they lost it for all of us. Right now, I'm not pointing fingers. If we'd have been there, we'd have done the same thing, but... That's where we lost that direct access to God, right? Now, it didn't take God by surprise. People always act like God was shocked that Adam and Eve failed. You know, he was shocked that the law didn't work. That's not the case. He knew that they would sin. But see, God had to prove to us that they would sin. And this was God's way of saying, listen, if I put you in a perfect situation where there's only one thing to do wrong, you'll do it. Right? How many people see that with their kids? <laughs> right? One thing. One thing. Listen, you can do anything you want. Just don't play with daddy's machine over here. What do they do? So, I mean, it's like they gotta. Right? That's that sin nature. The garden did exactly what it was supposed to do. It showed us that even when we have direct access to God and only one thing to do wrong, we'll blow it. The law was designed to show us even when we have everything written down, we won't follow it. Right? It didn't shock God, so... Before creation, before he ever made the first person, he already had a plan to redeem us for when we lost that direct access, right? And what we celebrate as Christmas is just the beginning of that plan. It's starting to, to come into action. Because what Adam's sin lost us, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection restored to us. Okay, and that's what we're going to be learning. So let's, let's move on. Let's talk about the veil of the temple. Because the veil in the Old Testament temple separated man from God. Now, Exodus 26, 31 says, You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, uh, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of Achaia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold, on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil un, uh, under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony where uh, there within the veil... Listen, and the veil shall serve for you as a what? As a partition, a separation, a wall between the holy place and the holy of holies. So the temple was actually divided into several different sections. Okay, first of all, there was the court of the Gentiles. And this is where anybody could come and worship. Anybody. You didn't have to be an Israelite. Anybody could come. That's where we would have had to go, right? Because we're not Israelites. This is where anybody could go and worship. And then a little closer in, you know, as that worked toward the middle, toward the Holy of Holies. The next section was called the outer court. Okay, and the outer court was sometimes called the women's hall. Okay, <laughs> so many jokes, so little time. I'm not even going to go there. I've already got on you ladies, so I'm not even going to go there. Right, but this is where the women worshipped and gossip. No, and worship. This is, where, this, is, this is where the women worshipped. They were allowed to worship in this area, but they couldn't go any farther. 
This is where they were allowed to gather and they were allowed to worship. Then you had the inner court, and this is where Jewish men, only Jewish men, would bring their animals for sacrifice, and this is where they would worship. So they would actually bring their animal in and give it to a priest, and they would wait while he offered their sacrifice. They would wait for the whole process, right? Okay, and then one more step closer would have been called the court of the priests. And this is where the priest prepared and offered all the animals for sacrifice. All right, so we had all these areas, and the last area, the very last area, was called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was allowed to enter this. No one else, okay? No one else could enter, just the high priest. So on the Day of Atonement, God would meet with the high priest, and the high priest would make atonement or make a sin offering for the, for the nation of Israel, right? Now, it wasn't, it, this was a difficult thing. It could only be done on the Day of Atonement that he could enter here, and if anybody else tried to enter there, they would fall dead immediately, okay? Because there was, there was a separation put there. They weren't allowed to cross that, only the high priest, right? Now, this wasn't easy, okay? Because this veil made it obvious that man and God no longer had a personal relationship. That veil separated man from God. That veil was God's way of saying there's something between you and I that hinders us from having that personal relationship, and that something is called sin. Right? And you can make these offerings and get atonement year by year, but the sin is still there. There's, there's been no eternal redemption made yet. Okay, Now, understand it wasn't easy for the high priest either. It actually, this was kind of a rough job. Because the high priest had to go through his cleansing ritual before he could even go in. And then he had to make sure that all his sin was confessed and atoned before he went in to make atonement for Israel. Okay, now, understand it's not like you got a demerit if you didn't do it right. If he went in there and he wasn't cleansed, if he went in there and hadn't confessed all of his sin, if he didn't go through the ritual, when he went past that veil, he would die. Okay, and this, this kind of sounds funny, but this is what history teaches us. They used to tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest before he would go in to make atonement. And they would put a bell on that rope. <laughs> right then I'd go, you know what, let somebody else do this. Because they would listen, and if they... If the bell stopped ringing, that meant the priest had stopped moving, and he was probably dead. So they would take the rope and drag him out like a sack of potatoes. Because they couldn't go in to get him, or they would die. Right? So, I mean, imagine the fear that would be going through your mind, thinking, did I confess everything? As they're tying this rope and bell to you, when you're getting ready to go in, because that's how serious that situation was. Okay, it's, that veil separated. It represented a barrier placed between man and God by sin but ever since adam and eve man has been trying to find a way to break down that barrier so that we could have that access to god again and when the veil of the temple was torn when jesus surrendered his life it says that you know that we'll be looking at that in a minute that you know the darkness fell upon the earth and it says that there was an earthquake and the rocks split and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom when that happened that signified the end of that era of law, that end of that era where there was no direct access to God anymore. It was the beginning of grace. Now men could have that again, right? No longer would man need a priest to intercede between him and God. Now man had direct access to God himself because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And the whole reason he was born was for this moment. Because in this moment, Jesus became the true and last 
high priest who got us eternal redemption. Right, Hebrews chapter 10. You have no idea how tempting it was to preach about this forever. There's so much on this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, you remember how the high priest had to cleanse himself to be in the presence of God? Had to make sure everything was cleansed? What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that the moment Jesus died and we trust that for our eternal life, we, through him, have gone through the cleansing process. We are allowed to be in the presence of God, not because we're good enough, but because he was good enough. And our faith in him makes us clean in God's presence. That is so, so powerful. See, because the old high priest would have to go in every year and make these offerings. And it wasn't enough to last eternally. It had to come back every year. Jesus, when he became high priest, he offered the eternal blood of the spotless Lamb of God. And he only had to enter the Holy of Holies one time to guarantee we had eternal life in that direct access back. So again, what Adam lost through his sin, Jesus returned to us through the sacrifice of himself. Romans 5.18, I love these passages. It says, so then... As through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to what? All men. Everybody. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Right? For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so knowing all that, now do you see why there was such a celebration when Jesus was born? This was... We are coming to the end of the road here for that dispensation of the law where man had to go through a priest where there was no personal relationship. We were coming to the end of that. The birth of Jesus was the announcement that, hey, listen, the one who's going to tear down that veil has been born. That's why the angels were singing. That's why they went in contact with the shepherds. That's why God put the star in the sky so that everyone could come and see because this child who was born... This baby who was born was going to be the one who finally put us into a personal relationship with God again to return to us what we lost in Adam. The angel even told Mary and Joseph this. I mean, they understood that this birth was just the beginning of the plan, right? See, when Mary came to Joseph, and I think a lot of times we downplay that. We think Joseph was more spiritual than he actually was because when Mary came to him, imagine you're engaged. And back then, if you were engaged, it was the same as being married, pretty much. If you wanted to break it off, it was like a divorce proceeding, right? Imagine now, his young wife comes and says, I'm, I'm pregnant. And he's like, but we haven't, you know? And she says, no, no, it, it's not by anybody. It's by the Holy Spirit. Now, do you really think Joseph's goes, oh, okay, okay, I got you. Right, right, by the Holy Spirit. That makes sense. No. He heard that and he goes, seriously? Seriously. So God just put a baby in you, right? I mean, I'm serious. He was a human. You know, sometimes we forget that. But he, w he loved her and he didn't want to, you know, make a big scene. So he was going to quietly divorce her or end the engagement. Then an angel came to him and explained this. Look at this, Matthew 1.20. It says, but when he, this is talking about Joseph, 
It says, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of, Zay, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from their sins. Basically, he's saying the very thing that is blocking people from having a personal walk with Jesus, uh, with God, the, having that direct access with God, the very thing that's blocking that, he's going to tear down. He's going to take care of. He announced this to him so that he would understand. So Jesus was the one that was going to bring back that direct access, right? So, yes, he was born in a manger, right? And we need to celebrate that. But he was born in a manger to die on a cross. I mean, that would be tough as a parent. You know, sometimes people forget the sacrifice that Joseph and Mary made. You know, that would be a tough situation knowing that that beautiful baby that got, how many people remember when your baby, your first child was born? A lot of you? Uh, how many people rue that day? No, I'm just kidding. No, I remember when my first baby was born, <laughs> it's funny, it's, it, everybody told me all the old wives' tales, it was a boy. We didn't actually get a, you know, cheat. I shouldn't say cheating because everybody does that now, so they can have their reveal parties, right? But, you know, we, di we didn't do that. And so everybody's saying, you know all the old wives' tales, well, she's carrying it low, that means it's a boy, right? You know, her eyelash is higher than the other, that means it's a boy. <laughs> they always had some dumb thing that they had that made, you know, so they had me convinced, because I was dumb, that I was having a boy. I didn't care one way or another, I just wanted a healthy baby, but I was convinced. And I'll never forget, we had a C-section, and... And, well, I say we, she did the work, you know. <laughs> it's funny, she goes, I don't think I'm numb. And I look over the blanket and their hands are in there and I go, oh, you're numb. <laughs> but when they pulled the baby out, they said, it's a girl. And I go, uh-uh. That was literally my first response. No, it isn't. And he's like, yeah, I've been doing this a long time. And he laughed. He said, it's a girl. But when she was born, I just cried. I ran out to tell everybody what was happening and I couldn't. I was bawling. And it's, it's, it's amazing because the, the second your child is born, you immediately have the most powerful form of love probably ever created. And that's that parental love for your child. There's like no classes that teach you how to love them like that. Right? It's just, it's just there. And from the second they're born, you would die for them. From the second they're born, you would give everything you had to protect them, wouldn't you, parents? And I can't explain it to you if you haven't had children. Your day's coming. Right, But you would do anything for that child the moment they're born. Mary and Joseph were no different. They would have done anything for this child. They would have done anything, but they knew that he was born to die on a cross so that he could finally destroy the veil that separated man from God. And once again, we could be in his presence like Adam and Eve were in the garden. Right, So the best present ever given i know a lot of people say jesus being born was the best present ever given and you know okay I, I get it but tearing that veil down in my opinion was the greatest gift because it brought us into his presence we finally had the ability to be in the presence of god again and i just think that's so amazing right now i promised i'd be brief so i better move on but there's another thing here that we can't overlook it said that the veil was torn from what remember top to bottom now understand a veil when i told you what it was made of i didn't go into real you know a lot of detail we're talking it was a very thick intricately made it wasn't like you know a curtain you know like you see at walmart that you just pull back and look through it was a heavy duty 
curtain, you know, built by the best craftsmen, and a man could not tear it. A couple men probably could not tear it by themselves, let alone from top to bottom, right? The reason it was torn from top to bottom was because God himself reached down and said, now I will remove that barrier between man and me. My son has paid for the eternal life of anyone who would believe. He's paid for the sin of the world. So I myself, the one who placed the barrier there, I will remove it. And from the top to bottom, God reached down and tore it and opened it up. And so man could have access again from top to bottom. It's kind of like God opened the first Christmas present, right? (laughs) He tore into it. I know that is so lame, but I like it. Right? He tore open the first great gift. That's the ability for us to have access to him again. Right now. Let's move on. Matthew 27, 51b. It says, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, the Hebrews didn't like to use the word death. So they would say someone fell asleep, or they would use the word sleep to replace death. Uh, The bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, a lot of people get confused here. They think, well, they weren't raised until the resurrection. That's not what it says. They were resurrected themselves, and then after Jesus' resurrection, those people who once were dead went into the city. Okay, it's two different events here, right? But think about this for a second. I believe that God did it this way to get everybody's attention, right? To make sure everybody knew something special was happening. Remember when Jesus was born, there was some supernatural events that went on, right? This star that stayed in the sky in the same position. Angels singing. Angels coming down and talking to people and directing them to the birth of the Messiah. There were some supernatural things that happened here. So God, uh, you know, likewise at his death has supernatural events going on so that people will understand this was a God thing that was happening. Because the exact moment Jesus dies, there's an earthquake. We're talking a legit earthquake, probably like nothing we've ever experienced because rocks were splitting in two. Okay, now I just wonder, you remember all the people that were yelling and mocking him and saying, you know, save if you're Jesus, come off, or if you're, uh, if you're the Messiah, come off the cross. If you're the Son of God, save yourself. All these people were mocking him and making jokes. Remember those people? I wonder how their attitudes changed when the darkness fell on the earth for three hours. Right, and, and there might have been some that thought, oh, you know, eclipse. But when the earth started shaking and the darkness is there, I kind of wonder if people started going, okay, maybe this is a God thing. Because everything's shaking violently and rocks are splitting open. Right? So I imagine that their arrogance that was all over their face, the mockery that was all over their face, probably changed to fear and trembling quickly. But, I mean, just in case that wasn't enough to let them know it was a God thing, the next thing probably got them. Because the tombs were opened. Tombs were opened, and people who were dead came out of the grave and were walking around. Now, if that doesn't convince you, you got issues, man. <laughs> right? Because, I mean, back then when they buried somebody, they wrapped them. They were wrapped up and, and, and put spices on them to, you know, to keep them from stinking. Right? And so it wasn't, I mean, it's not like they just, you know, oh, we're not sure if they were dead. No, they were wrapped and buried. Okay? So there's probably all these people ripping this grave clothing off themselves. Can you imagine seeing, you know, a loved one that just passed away walking out, throwing their grave clothes off, dusting the spices off? That would get your attention. 
You know, so everybody's going, okay, maybe, maybe he was something godly. Because ever since he said it is finished, everything has changed. Something started the moment he said it's finished. Because all these supernatural events, God is trying to say something is happening here. Because these people, it's funny, these people were recently, probably recently dead, and they were probably well-known by people because they called them saints. Now, there's a lot of myths out there about what a saint is. Oh, you know, complete three miracles and do all, yeah, that's, that's not it. Okay, here's what a saint is, someone who believes in Jesus. That's what it is. Someone who trusts God for their eternal life, that's a saint. That's what the Bible refers to as a saint. So they called them saints, so they knew these people, and they knew they were believers, and they were raised, they were resurrected. Right. And most likely, you know, some of these were probably martyred for following Jesus. So imagine what the Jews saw, thought when they saw them. Hey, we didn't we kill him? And there he is walking, resurrected and walking. Right. This this would would make a statement. And everybody right away knew something's not right. <laughs> you know what? Maybe he was exactly who he says he was. That's why the soldier says, as we'll look at next week, surely this was the Son of God. One of those who took part in his crucifixion says, surely this was the Son of God. Because all this made it evident. And, but you know what the cool thing is to me about this? I mean, it's cool that dead bodies are coming out of the grave. That is cool. And don't act like it is. And I know what some of the most popular TV shows are right now. <laughs> right? You guys watch The Walking Dead or whatever it's called. What's it called? Walking Dead, is it? Bam. If you guys watch that, then this got your eye. We're talking, that was cool. Raising people from the grave. I mean, that, that was pretty neat. But the thing that's even more cool to me was this was just a preview. This probably was designed so that people would be the believers who had been fighting the good fight. And putting their life at risk just to follow Jesus. This was probably encouraging to them. This was his way of saying, what you see happening right now shows you that I have power over death. These saints, believers, were resurrected. Yes, they were actually alive. It wasn't, you know, just some, you know, parlor trick and they'd fall dead later. No, they lived normal lives until their normal death after that. He brought them back to life. This is his way of saying, those who believe in me like John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26 says, will live even if they die. And those who die and believe in me will always live. I just think that's powerful, don't you? This was an example that resurrection follows those who believe. They don't ever have to fear death. That's why Jesus made that promise to them. He made a promise that everyone who believed in him had nothing to fear because they would live again. I love what he said in John 14. John 14, 1. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in, in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Listen. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, this was not just a way of letting everybody know that they had just crucified the Son of God. And believe it or not, as we'll see, this didn't convince everybody, which I don't get that, but it didn't convince everybody. But it was more than just that. This was, this was God telling everyone who'd been faithful to him, 
yeah, I got that kind of power. And yeah, I, I haven't forgotten about you. And you will live again, even if you die. They can't take anything from you. I can't give back to you and give it to you abundantly more. And that's why I think this was the perfect Christmas text. I do. It's not your normal Christmas text, right? But I think it's one of the most perfect Christmas texts out there because Jesus' birth was like God placing the gift under the tree, right? But his sacrificial death, I mean, his pain for the sin of the world by innocently going to the cross when he died and said it is finished and the veil was torn in two, I believe that was like the gift being opened that was placed under the tree. The plan, the culmination of all his work came together in the fact that now man once again had direct access to God through Jesus Christ. I just think that's so powerful. And sometimes I think we need to remember that these aren't just stories. These aren't just things that, that we read about because you have to before you open gifts, right? These are things that were written that actually happened that are supposed to encourage us to continue to fight the fight and live the life. Because when we live it, we open the door for others to question why and, and ask questions and, and, and seek the same God that we're serving and they can live forever, too. It's so much more than that. I wish when the Christmas season came, we thought, a, you know, more than, we thought about more than just gifts and the manger scene. I wish we actually thought, you know what? This signifies the day the plan was put in motion that has now been fulfilled. My sin is paid for. Through faith alone, I have the gift of eternal life. I need to share that with everybody. Since it's the season of giving gifts, let me give you this one. If you believe, you can have eternal life. I wish that's what we would think of. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask if you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. And I don't mean that kind where we ask people to come up front. I don't do that. Um, it's just that we believe the word of God is powerful. I remember before I was a believer being 20-something, sitting in a crowd and hearing the word of God and feeling like the preacher was talking to me. I felt like there was nobody else in there but me. And so ever since then, I, I believe that we give someone an opportunity. So if every head's bowed and every eye's closed, if, if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to chase you down after church. I'm not going to email you or junk mail you. I just want you to make that first step that says, you know what, I hear. He is speaking to me. Pray for me. And just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm going to pray for you because, bless those people. Bless those people because, listen, he's speaking to you for a reason. He went through all this to make sure you could have a direct access to the Father in a personal relationship. If he's speaking to you, that means he's telling you, yeah, I did that for you. Bless those people. Listen, if you're listening online, watching online, we're going to pray for you. God knows your heart. But believers, listen, it's, this is an amazing time of year. I love Christmas. I like Christmas cookies more than I should. But here's what I really like. It forces everybody, whether they like it or not, to think about Jesus. I just ask it, if you're a believer, don't let today be the only day you remember everything he's done. Don't make today the only day that you think about gifts, but every day think about the gifts he's given you, especially your eternal life, and be thankful and live thankful. I'm just going to pray for you too. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. We just thank you for the love that you've shown us.
God, I can't understand how you could love someone like me. God, your love and your grace are so amazing because none of us deserve it. We never have and we never will. It just blows my mind that you can love me not because of who I am, but despite who I am. I just pray, God, that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, there's certainly a lot of things that can confuse them. Religion has made a mess of the most simple gift ever given. I just pray, God, that you would clear their mind and let them know that all they have to do is believe that what your son did was enough to guarantee their eternal life. And if they believe that, your word promises they'll have it. If they make that decision, I pray they reach out to us or reach out to a good Christian friend or organization somewhere close to them because it's so important that they build those relationships and bonds that uh, help them walk through their new faith. God, for those of us who already know you, don't let us walk through this message and amen it and then go back to a life that forgets you exist. God, I just pray that your people are evident by their gratitude, by their love and their dedication to you their willingness to serve and their willingness to share the greatest gift you ever gave us. That we can have faith in Jesus for eternal life. Lord, we just ask that you would go to each one of us as we leave here, keep us safe, let us enjoy the holidays thinking most about you and your sacrifice. We just pray, God, that if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time. We just thank you for all things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.